This morning we are continuing our sermon series 316, and what we've been doing is taking a deep dive on five different verses in the New Testament that all have the same citation, 316. And uh, we've included in this series the challenge of memorizing these verses. And so you are handed out cards. We have more cards on the welcome desk. And, and I know some of you have been working hard on it. Some of you sadly have concluded there's no way I can do this. Uh, and I want to challenge you today. Uh, so let's work on uh, how far we've come, and we'll kind of do this together. I'll say a few words, and then I'll turn to you and see if you can keep the sentence going. Our first verse was Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Good job. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with what in your heart? With gratitude in your hearts to God. Good job. Last week we added to that 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is and is useful for in righteousness. And if we're going to add verse 17, so that the will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Good job. Keep it up. We need to keep rehearsing the, the verses we've memorized, even as we add a new verse to that. That's the way you, gotta, you hold it fresh in your mind. So this morning, we're going to move forward. We're going to add another 316 verse, and I've got a, a, an embarrassing admission to, to offer on your card. Uh, I, I wrote it wrong. I said 2 Corinthians 316. I had one job. And I got it wrong. It's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Uh, so, yes, I messed it up. Feel free to scratch out number two on your card. It's 1 Corinthians 3.16 that we're going to be memorizing. And it says this, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? The word yourselves is in red because I'm going to come back to that later on uh, today. And we're going to actually eliminate that from the verse uh, but for right now, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Join me as we pray as we consider God's word. Uh, Father God, we ask uh, that your God-inspired, God-breathed word uh, would dwell in us richly. And we ask today that you would give us eyes to see and ears to, to hear and hearts to be transformed by the power of your word. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as our pattern has been, uh, we are diving deep on these individual verses. But first, we just take a step back and we consider the context in which the, the verse is given to us. And so we want to take a, a step back and consider uh, Corinth. Consider this, this letter to the, the Corinthians. In the span of about 18 months, where there once was no church in Corinth, there was then a church. It all happened in about 18 months. In the city of Corinth, there was no church, and now there is this vibrant church in the city. 
There's a, an axiom that we've been using uh, at Consistory and our leadership that, that says this. Most of us overestimate what we can accomplish in a year uh, and underestimate what we can accomplish in three years. We tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in one year and underestimate what we can do in three years. God can do amazing things when we are following him on mission. In 18 months, God plants a church in this city. And so it happened as Paul, this, this church planter, came to Corinth. Now we can read about this in Acts chapter 18. If you'd like to later today read about the, the circumstances of the planting of the church, go to Acts 18. That's where you're going to read about it. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest ver version. Paul comes to Corinth and he stays there for a year and a half. And in order to fund his ministry, he takes on the job of making tents. He's a tent maker. So tent maker by week. And then in the evenings and on the weekends and on the Sabbath, he's, he's engaged in mission. Every Sabbath, he's going into the synagogue and he's reasoning with all of the Jews about who Jesus is. And he's making the, the bold claim to them that Jesus is the Messiah that they've all been waiting for. And so as he does this week after week after week, a number of Jews come to believe that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Lord and Savior, and they get baptized. But there's many that don't, and they begin to get tired of Paul, tired of his incessant ramblings on and on about Jesus. And Paul gets frustrated, and he says this, he says, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. This is a significant moment in the ministry of Paul. He's now shifted his gaze from going to, the, to God's people people that he identified with as a Jew, and he said, I'm now going to go to the Gentiles. And so he begins ministering to all the, the people living in Corinth who are not Jews. Ministering to Gentiles is different than ministering to Jews for Paul. With the Jews, Paul could assume we've got a shared history. We've got a, a shared appreciation for the, the Old Testament We've got kind of a shared morality, a shared ethic that is, is based on the scriptures. We've got kind of this shared language. We understand one another when we communicate these, these spiritual truths. With the Gentiles, all of that's out the window. There is no shared history. There's no shared uh, Old Testament. There's no shared morality or ethic based on the scriptures. No shared language. Everything's brand new. It's back to the basics. Adding to that complexity, Corinth was a hotbed for immorality. Just an absolute hotbed for immorality. So much so that the name Corinth was turned into a verb. Corinthianized. To Corinthianize was to, to be sexually immoral. They were so known for, for their immorality that they actually took the name of the city and turned it into a, a, a verb. So Paul is planting a church amongst the people who are enmeshed in this Corinthian culture. It's an uphill climb. But the light shines brightest in the dark. And in 18 months, this fledgling church has been birthed in Corinth. Paul discerns, it's time for me to leave. 
This is what he would do. He'd plant a church, and then he'd go somewhere else, and he would do it again. And so he, he leaves, but shortly after he leaves, another gifted leader comes named Apollos. And Apollos, we're, we read in Acts 18, was charismatic, dynamic. This was a man who knew the scriptures and loved God. He's a powerful preacher. And so he comes to Corinth, and he picks up where Paul left off. So that's the background to the establishment of the church in Corinth. What's the background to this letter, 1 Corinthians? Well, as we might expect, the church in Corinth ran into some struggles. Everything was not smooth sailing. They, they began to experience some difficulties, and news of those difficulties reached Paul. Several people from the church came and told Paul, hey, this is what's going on. And that was a concern to Paul, and so not being able to go back to Corinth, he wrote a letter to, to be sent back to the church to help get the church restored, get them back on track. So what were the, the struggles that the church was enduring? There were about five or six big ones. I'm going to just share two of them with you. The first was polarization, which is interesting. Isn't it interesting 2,000 years later, it's something the church still struggles with? Polarization, division, disunity, the church was, was fracturing, was one of their, their problems. The second problem was sexual immorality. Again, so prevalent in Corinth, so prevalent, and now it's prevalent in the church. The believers are, are coming to Christ, coming to the church, but they're bringing their culture with them and not seeing any conflict. Why can't we do the two? Why can't we be part of this community pursue Christ, and continue what, what we've always known for them, what we call immorality, for them wasn't immorality. It just, it was. It's the way everyone was. And so that was now in the church. And there are several other, other issues, but those are the two that we're going to zero in on. And so Paul is addressing these issues, and he writes the verse, 1 Corinthians 3.16, which comes in the, the first part of the book where he's specifically addressing polarization, division, and disunity. And he says, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And he begins with these, these questions, don't you know, if we were to read through the whole book of 1 Corinthians today, we would see that asked over and over again. He, he starts a lot of his, his teaching with, don't you know? Don't you know, what, what is he trying to get at through this rhetorical question? Well, there's two reasons for that question. One is because the Corinthians, are, they have a Greek heritage, and the Greeks loved knowledge. They prided themselves on their knowledge. For them, their favorite sport was not athletic in nature. It was argumentation. They loved to get together and debate the latest philosophies and ideas, and, and they prided themselves on how much they knew. And so Paul's question, don't you know, is just a little poke. It's a little poke at their pride, like, you're so smart. Don't you know this? The question also reflects the fact that, yes, they did know. While Paul was there during those 18 months, these things were all addressed. They did know. Their problem was not a lack of knowledge as much as it was just an unwillingness to obey. And so his letter is written to inform, but more so it's written to incite action. 
Friends, these are things that you know. We've talked about this. And now the call is to obey. Again, there's not much new under the sun, as the scripture says. The same dynamic is true for us today. Uh, as I preach to maybe 200 of you today, uh, I probably won't be sharing many things that you don't know. I, like, especially if you've been following Christ for a long time and you're acquainted with the scriptures, our issue often is not what we don't know. It's that we do know and we have just yet to be compelled to get into action about what we do know. So for example, do you know that God calls you to be generous? Do you know that the scripture lays out the principle of a tithe? 10% of what God has entrusted to you to, to give back to him? My guess is if you've been following Christ for, for a while, you know that. So then the question would be, well, if we're not tithing, why not? It's not because we don't know. It's because of another reason. Most of us know that, as we memorized two weeks ago, that Christ's word should dwell in us richly. We know that God desires that of us. But if we've not adopted any practices in our life to embed his word in our hearts and our minds, the problem's not because of a lack of knowledge. There's, there's some other reason that we're not doing that. Most of us know that God has given us the gift of marriage as the, the proper covenantal relationship to enjoy the gift of our sexuality. We know that. And so if we're stretching the boundaries of that, that God has created, it's not because we don't know. It's because of some other reason. Don't you know, Paul says, that you are God's temple? So here's something I didn't know. We don't know everything. Here's something that I learned this week about this verse. The you is plural. Don't you know that that you are God's temple, the you is, is plural. In English, unfortunately, you is both singular, can be both singular and plural. You never know unless the context. In Greek, you know when it's plural and when it's singular. I have always thought of this verse in the singular, that, that, that Paul is writing to me personally and saying, don't you know, Scott, that you're God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you, but he's in this context, in verse Chapter 3, verse 16, he's writing to the community. And, and a way we could get at it is by saying, y'all, like, hey, don't y'all know? And the reason I'm getting rid of the word yourselves, that you yourselves, is the NIV is the only translation I could find that added it. It doesn't show up in the Greek. Uh, and I think they did that because they're uncomfortable with the plurality of you, that they were trying to get across the idea that this is this is singular, but it's not, it's plural. And so I think a, a better translation, every other translation does not include yourselves. Don't you, don't you, plural, know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. Now this is interesting. In three chapters, in chapter six, this almost exact same verse shows up, but this time it's singular. In chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, Don't you, singular, know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so I want to ask the question, in one verse, it's plural, it's addressing the community. In one verse, it's singular, it's addressing each of us. Why plural? Why singular? Well, I think it's because in the first verse, what Paul is combating is the disunity. He's combating the the division. He's combating the polarization. In the second verse, he's combating the sexual immorality. It becomes very much more more, uh, individual-based. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, what he's doing is offering a warning to the church. Don't you all know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit lives in you? It's a warning to anyone that would threaten, disrupt, destroy, corrupt, splinter, fracture the unity of the church. It's a very real warning. In a couple of weeks on December 5th, we're going to be welcoming, Lord willing, several new members into our church. We're going to invite them up. They'll be standing across the front of the sanctuary. They will be facing you, and I'll come around in front of them, and I'm going to ask them several questions. And the last question that I'm going to ask them is this. Do you promise to accept the spiritual guidance of the church to walk in a spirit of Christian love with this congregation and to seek those things which make for unity, purity, and peace. There is a reason that that question is included in the questions of church membership. The unity, the purity, and the peace of the church, of the body, of the family, of the temple is a big deal. To act in such a way as to undermine the unity of the church is a dangerous act. It's like taking a pick and and chipping away at the ice over the lake on which you are walking. Like sitting on a branch and taking a saw and cutting the branch on which you are sitting. We could have fun just trying to keep coming up with analogies. It's a dangerous thing. This is what's taking place in the Corinthian church. They're splintering into factions. Some group is saying, we're followers of Paul. Another group in the church is saying, no, we're followers of Apollos. Apollos is better than Paul. No, Paul is better than Apollos. And Paul is writing, what is this nonsense? The church is not about Paul The church is not about Apollos. The church is about Jesus Christ. Our unity, as the kids just told us, is in God. Our unity is in the person of Jesus Christ. Even more specifically, our unity is in the spirit that we all share. There is one spirit. The scripture says there's one faith. There's one baptism. There is one Lord. And that is what ties us together. That is the the tie that binds The hymn says it beautifully. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is a new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and he sought her to be his holy bride. The church is his bride 
and with his own blood he bought her. For her life he died. This is what God thinks about the church. For her life he sent his son to die. The unity of the church for which Jesus died is a much bigger deal than we realize. And it's become so much more difficult today. In the first century in Corinth, how many churches were there? It's one. If things don't work in the church of Corinth, there is not a church two blocks over to say, well, that's all right. I'm just going to go to the church down the street. It's like we are sinking or swimming with this, this church. This is what we've got today. We, we lose the value of the unity of the church because it's kind of like McDonald's, Wendy's, Hardee's, Jimmy John's. You know, like take your pick. If it doesn't work out in one place, go to another place. Listen to what Jesus said about the unity of the church. He's just shared the Last Supper with his disciples. They're on their way to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. He soon will be hanging from a cross, and he prays. And the last thing he prays is this. I, my prayer is not for them alone, that's the disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's the church in Corinth. That's the church in Fulton. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may know that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, the Holy Spirit. I've given them the glory that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When Paul is writing, don't you all know that you're God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? I think he's hearkening back to Jesus' prayer. I think he's hearkening back to this. Don't you all know we talked about this? We talked about what Jesus' desire for us was that, that we would be one. I and them, you and me. Jesus is in the church in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is the basis of our unity. This is the glue that holds us together. Friends, I, I don't need to, to say it because you know it. We're, the church has been more polarized in the last two or three years than, than I've experienced in, a lo- in my lifetime. Just in the last couple years. Division, disunity, polarization over all kinds of things. If Paul were alive to write us a letter today, I'm pretty sure the letter would begin with the question, don't you know? Like, don't you all know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? The word used for temple, it could be two different words. It could be like the whole temple grounds or it could be that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant resided, where there was a thick curtain and the high priest could only enter once a year. That's the word that's being used here when he talks about temple. It's holy ground. It's the holiest of holy ground. This is sacred space. Don't you know that you, and we're not talking about the building. We're talking about the the community, the fellowship. Don't you all know that this is the holiest of holy uh, communions, fellowships, that God's spirit lives in you. Basically, what I think Paul is saying to them is, hey, folks, slow your roll. 
I know there's a lot of things that you're upset about. Just slow your roll. Monitor your speech a little bit more. Monitor your actions. Listen to the next thing he writes after 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you all, all know that you're God's temple, that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and y'all are that temple. What God has done here is sacred, and no one may destroy it. All right, so this leads me to a question. Do you ever get to challenge the church? Do you ever get to say, wait, time out. What's going on here is not right. I think so. Uh, what this verse is not saying is that we just all need to blindly go along with whatever the church is saying. If that were the case, there would have never been a reformation. We would all still be buying indulgences to earn our way to heaven. This is not saying just blindly go along with it. But when things are, are not right, and you see it's not right, there's a way to go about that that isn't just to cause unnecessary division and, and disunity and polarization. Jesus said the church is his bride. The church is his temple. God has chosen for his spirit to dwell in this community that is his church. One of the things that that, that raises for me is how foolish is this contemporary idea that I don't need the church. To be a Christian, to follow Jesus, I, I don't need the church. To that, Paul would say, don't you all know? 